Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. The FT. How the woes of Britain's biggest supermarket retailer may be impacting your investments. Why you could be in for a shock if you think the new single-tier state pension is going to leave you better off. And can payday lenders survive in a world of tough new regulation? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with my FT colleagues Judith Evans, Emma Dunkley and a special studio guest, Malcolm McLean, Senior Consultant at Pensions Advisors Barnett Waddingham. First, what do problems at Tesco mean for investors? Shares in Britain's biggest retailer took a tumble last week, falling as much as 17% to their lowest level in around 14 years, as the supermarket announced yet another profit warning, its fourth in six months. Over the last year, the share price has halved, management has been thrown into turmoil, and a host of executives, including Philip Clark, its CEO, and its chairman, Sir Richard Broadbent, have headed for the exit. The problems stem from the way the business books payments from suppliers, which led it to overstate its profits by at least £250 million, and which have attracted the scrutiny of regulators. It is all a far cry from the picture just a few years ago when Tesco was riding high as one of the FTSE 100's apparently safest investments. Now the market expects a clear plan of action from the retailer as to how it's going to dig itself out of this hole. In the meantime, some investors are selling off their holdings, while others are standing by the retailer. Judith Evans has been looking into the reaction among investment funds to Tesco's difficulties. Judith, Hello. Given where the share price is today, it might seem surprising to some that there are still funds heavily invested in the group. Which are the ones you've been looking at? Well, um, I've been looking at some of the funds which do still or did as of about a week ago have Tesco in their top 10 holdings. The biggest of these are two Schroeder's funds, um, Schroeder Income and Schroeder Income Maximizer, reflecting the fact that until recently, Tesco was seen as quite a reliable dividend play. Um, There's also a couple of ethical funds from AXA and L&G, plus um, the Kennex Strategic Value Fund and a St. James's Place portfolio known as High Octane, perhaps a bit higher than they bargained for. Have they made a mistake or is this part of a view that recovery at Tesco is inevitable? Well, I'm concluding that in at least some cases, this was a mistake simply because um, a fair few of these managers don't really want to talk about why they own the stock. 
However, Richard Marwood, who manages AXA's ethical distribution fund, said that he was disappointed in this stock and that there were some big challenges for the business that, and that he's not convinced the company is doing the right things to achieve a turnaround. However, of course, a big factor is when they actually bought Tesco. If they've held it for a while, they'll have seen the share price halve. But if they've bought it more recently, there are some analysts saying that um, it might now represent value. James Henderson, who runs the Lowland Investment Trust, has apparently bought um, Tesco this week. So are there big investors who have pulled out of Tesco uh, in a big way? And And what about individual investors? How are they reacting Some of the biggest Tesco shareholders like Aberdeen Asset Management and Franklin Resources have reduced their holdings um, over the past few months. Having said that, individual investors at least seem to have viewed this week's events as a buying opportunity. Some of the direct consumer platforms like Barclays Stockbrokers and Interactive Investor said that they've seen very high trading activity in Tesco and that the majority of that has been to buy indicating that um, at least some individual investors have decided that this is the right moment. Mm, That is the question, isn't it? Do people now think that Tesco is good value because the share price is so low? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, And unfortunately, Mr Marwood at AXA, who does own Tesco, said he wasn't convinced that this was the end of the fall. He said there's a lot of tidying up to be done. Tesco have not only these accounting problems to deal with, but also just the really stiff competition um, among UK supermarkets. However, I think more will become clear on the 8th of January when we'll get a trading statement from Tesco. And they've promised to say more about what they're going to do to turn things around and improve their offering for customers. Certainly, some people do think there might be value in the stock Chelsea Financial Services, for example, says um, it could be interesting as a contrarian play to buy Tesco now. The bottom line is one third of the UK still shops in a Tesco store. Judith, thanks very much. There's more on the Tesco effect in this weekend's FT Money. We also take a look at what's emerged from the publication of the Finance Bill this week, uh, including the latest in the HMRC's campaign against tax avoidance and what this might mean for investors. FT Money is, of course, part of the weekend FT, which is widely available on Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com money or on tablet devices using our new web app. Still to come on the show, is the writing on the wall for the payday lending industry? First, though, to pensions. The government is putting through radical changes to the state pension, which most of us will receive in one form or another to help provide for ourselves in old age. The new so-called single-tier pension, which comes in in April 2016, is designed to sweep away the current mishmash of different arrangements accumulated over decades. This complex system left some people better off than others and made it hard for certain types of claimant, such as self-employed workers or mothers who take time out of the workplace for family reasons, to get a fair state pension. So the new regime has a commendable focus on simplicity. But will it be more generous? David Cameron, in a BBC radio interview in October, said it would be. But official figures and groups like the independent think tank the Institute for Fiscal Studies say many will be left worse off. In a poll of 10,000 people conducted exclusively for the FT by Saga, we found that over two-thirds of people either think that the new system will be more generous or don't know. So, confusion abounds. With us to get to the bottom of the issue is Malcolm McLean, Senior Consultant with Pensions Advisors, Barnett Waddingham. Thanks very much for joining us. 
Could we start with a bit of background? What exactly will change in April 2016? Well, as you say, at the moment we have a, a ridiculously complicated system. The state pension is not one pension, but a series of bits and pieces, as it were. There is a basic state pension, which you uh, get by virtue of paying national insurance contributions throughout your working life. There is a, a state second pension on top of that, which you get in relation to your earnings over a period of time. And then, as necessary, beyond that, there is also a means-tested top-up called pensions credit. So you effectively have three pensions in the guise of a state pension. Now, it's very commendable of the government to recognise that there is a need to change here. And what they are doing, as you say, from 2016 is bringing in a single-tier pension, which, as the name suggests, means there will be one pension. And that one pension will be pitched at a level above the present um, uh, basic state pension, uh, which will give some people uh, a bigger state pension, but not for everybody. Perhaps you could tell us who will be the winners and the losers from this. Are there particular categories of people who who stand to gain? Well, first of all, the only people that will come into contention for the new single-tier state pension are those people who uh, are of a certain age. And basically, it's for men born on or after the 6th of April 1951 and for women born on or after the 6th of April 1953. Anybody else will continue under the existing arrangements. Uh, The People that will probably gain from this are people who uh, hitherto have not qualified for the state second pension, which we used to call SERPs, because they've been on low earnings, and that will include many women, perhaps part-time workers, and also the self-employed who have never had access to the state second pension. So they will be gainers, but there, there is a proviso on that, is, and that is that they will need to have 35 qualifying years of national insurance. Now, at the moment, to get the basic state pension, you only need 30. And that's something that I don't think has been made that clear. If you have less than the, those the requisite years, then you will get a proportion of the state pension, providing you have a minimum of 10. Now, against that, over the long term, there will be young people today who would have qualified under the existing system for more than the single-tier rate. Now, they, like everybody else, will just be on the single-tier state pension. So over the long term, they will be losers from this system. And I mean, So will it be possible now to pay more during my working life into my state pension in order to get more out of it at the other end? Uh, no, you, you, the maximum number of years required... Um, for the uh, full uh, state pension is the 35 years. If you pay 36, 37, 38, it doesn't count. Now, what the government are planning to do, which is all very complicated, I'm afraid, is as at 2016, they will work out for everybody of working age uh, what they're calling a foundation amount for the new new state pension. That will be calculated as to what they would be would have been entitled to if they were at state pension age as at the 6th of April 2016. Under either uh, the new system, assuming it had been in all the way back, or from a combination of the basic state pension and any second state pension or SERPs they'd added in. And whichever is the better of those two, that will be their starting point. And then they will build that up over time by virtue of paying national insurance contributions until they get to the full rate of the state pension and then that will be it. 
Now, there is another slight complication in all this, and that is for those people who in the past have opted out of the second state pension, what we often refer to as contracting out, they will have a deduction made from their starting uh, point for the for the new state pension, which will reduce them below uh, that level, uh, but not below what would have been the basic state pension, and then they can build that up over time. But what it does mean that in the first few years, there will be some people who will get less than the full rate of the state pension, even though they've got the 35 years in. On, uh, on the other hand, there will be other people who have in fact got more than the uh, the rate of the single-tier pension because of the combination of the second-state pension and the basic-state pension, they will be fixed at that amount. So there's a, there's a whole complicated set of work to be done here to establish what people will be entitled to as of 2016, but in the long term, everybody will be on the single-tier rate, providing they have the 35 years, and that will be a fixed flat rate. Malcolm, thank you very much. This weekend's cover story in FT Money gives full details of our poll and sets out exactly who is likely to win and who will lose from the new arrangements. Elsewhere in the issue, we take a look at the regulatory review into problems in the annuities market, which was published this week. We're always keen to hear your views. Please email us. Our address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. As we approach the end of 2014, it's safe to say the payday lending industry will be glad to see the back of it. After coming under intense criticism from everyone from charities, politicians and even the church, the industry was dealt what some described as a fatal blow by the regulator. The Financial Conduct Authority, which took over responsibility for regulating payday lenders this year, imposed tough new rules capping the daily charges they can levy on borrowers, and ensuring that borrowers pay back no more in fees and charges than the total value of the loan. So can the lenders continue to operate under these new terms of engagement with their customers? The biggest providers believe they can, and have recently started trialling new models of lending. Emma Dunkley has been taking a look for FT Money. Emma, is this a a make-or-break experiment for those that think they can survive? What are the terms? It certainly is. So the FCA said earlier in the year when it unveiled the new cap that it expects um, of the 400 payday lending services in existence in the UK that 99% of them in terms of number will be wiped out. And as a result, only a handful, around three or four, are expected to remain. So of some of the bigger payday lenders, we've started to see in the last few weeks the likes of Wonga trial these new types of loans with lower charges. And there have also been a few other providers who are a bit smaller and perhaps lesser known called Elevate and Mr Lender that are now writing to customers and making them aware of new loans they're trialling and launching loans with these lower charges. So the cap means that interest and fees cannot exceed 0.8% a day and that in terms of default charges this can't exceed £15. So these payday lenders are trialling them to see A, if if there's uh, uptake among a handful of customers and B, to see if their systems can actually cope. Do we have any sense of how many people will be unable to get new loans under these new rules? Yes, because it's hitting the payday lenders um, hard in terms of uh, revenues and costs, it's also going to mean that uh, 
the amount that they can lend is going to be slightly restricted. So the FCA has said that it expects around 70,000 people or about 7% of the current uh, number of borrowers will no longer be able to take out payday loans. And as a result of that, some people have aired concerns that perhaps they'll be forced to other forms of, uh, say, dodgy or illegal lending. So perhaps loan sharks um, as a way to take out short term high cost credit. However, the FCA has said that perhaps some of these fears are slightly unfounded because of the thousands of payday lender borrowers, actually only 5% of them are even aware that loan sharks exist. And of these, only 2% would actually go to a loan shark anyway. Just on that point, is, are, are there other forms of competition coming in, say, from mainstream banks or, or credit unions? Yes, yeah, so the banks are certainly being... Um, told that it's time that they sort of step into the breach and start um, extending lending to this perhaps neglected part of society in that sense. The Treasury actually recently wrote to uh, banks to say you need to do more to make borrowers aware of the facilities you have. So this can be in terms of, say, cheaper overdrafts or relatively low-cost credit cards. You've even got some special types of credit cards that are that are balance repair types, which enable people with very poor credit histories to take them out and even repair their credit history. So you've got pressure on banks in that sense and they're finally starting to up their game. And then you also have um, the credit unions out there as well that are seeking to make their presence known and extend their services. We've heard a lot last week about how um, spending cuts and austerity will be be continuing for years to come. Is that giving some of these groups uh, confidence that there will be demand uh, for years to come from low-income groups for for these kinds of loans? Well, this is one of the questions, whether payday lenders in the first place created a demand that wasn't there or whether they actually sprang up because there was a need to serve this demand that wasn't being um, addressed. It seems to gain mixed reviews. Some people suggest that actually payday lenders came to the market and created a demand that wasn't there in the first place. Whereas others are saying, well, since the credit crisis and and lending being constrained, actually fewer people are being um, extended credit. And do you think uh, there's any danger that we'd see some more regulation coming along? After all, the other thing that's happening next year is a general election. That's a good point. They were regulated for the first time by the FCA earlier this year. This is when the watchdog managed to gain powers to regulate the consumer credit industry. So they're now being pretty highly regulated and they're currently going through a phase of having to apply for full authorisation from the FCA. So I think the first few months of next year, we'll see how, how the industry copes with this new regulation being imposed upon them. Thanks very much, Emma. There's much more on personal finance in this weekend's FT Money. You can also read Merrin Somerset Webb on the hidden costs of Christmas credit cards and Jonathan Ely on what needs to change to make Britain save more. We've got the latest share tips from Investors Chronicle and an interview with Alexandra Burke, former winner of The X Factor. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Judith, Emma and our special guest Malcolm McLean. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.